morning. I hope you slept well. Are there some women that have come this morning and were not here last night? Okay, welcome. My name is Father John Paul, and we'll be beginning this, uh, this morning with a talk, again, on our personhood. But what I'd like to do is start out with a little um, prayer, but we'll sing it. You open your St. Michael's hymnal to number 350, 350. We'll start with the first verse. We'll only sing the first verse. So this morning's talk will be a little bit longer than the rest of them, just because it's helping to set up a little bit of a context of who God is and who we are. We're made in uh, God's image and likeness. You, I said last night, are a person. And as a person... We have different parts of our, ourselves that are, we have a nature, a human nature. So I, as a person, you as a person, have a body. And with your body, you have senses. You have five senses, sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. You experience things, you have arms, you have legs, as a person, though, you also have a soul. And a soul is different than your body. Your soul has a mind, and your soul has a will. Our mind somehow works through our brain, and we have the capacity to evaluate, 
to analyze, to search for truth, to imagine, to remember. And you have the capacity for receiving. You can listen to what others say. And you can listen to what God says. In our will, sometimes it's also referred to as our heart. Not the heart that is a muscle within our our body, but it is a place within our nature that reaches out to goodness. With this thing that we call our will or our heart, we can, from that place, believe, trust, We can love from that place. We can obey. We can forgive. We can be grateful. We can worship. We can cope. And it is, the will, is the place where we make choices. God could have forced us to choose good but he gave us freedom, and it's in our will that he gave us our greatest gift, the gift of freedom. Now, when I say that I am a person, I am not my body, and I am not my soul. I have a body, I have a soul, but I am a person. I am a who. And these other things are what. When I die, my body is separated from my soul. And I have hope that I will be reunited in the final resurrection. Now, this is not what the talk's going to be about, but it's I as a person is an important concept for this whole time together, these 40 hours of being in this time of retreat or this time of being in wilderness. My human nature, my body and my soul also have, I also have, what we call a psyche or a spirit, okay? And this is the area that is mingled with both our body and our soul. And one of the most important areas in this, in our spirit, is what we call emotions. Emotions are part of our psyche. And the Catechism talks about Uh, in 1763, if you want to ever look at this. But emotions are called, there are other synonyms that we use in our common language to emotions. Sometimes we refer to them as feelings. Sometimes we refer to them as passions or movements of the sensitive appetite. Probably none of you actually ever use that term, but that's like a, like a theological or a philosophical term, right? Um, but they 
All of these things, we usually, the common word for us in English is emotion, but they are part of us. We have emotions and they incline us to act or not to act according to something that we feel or something that we perceive. And it can be either a good or an evil. Now, why am I talking about this? It's because it's something that is good in us, but it's one of those things that we, as persons, struggle with the most, is being, as a person, in control or having reign over or being able to govern our human nature because our human nature is disturbed. And if you remember last night when I read the, that opening prayer from this time in Lent, this time of going into 40 days into the wilderness, the prayer was, Grant us, O Lord, that we may begin this holy campaign of Christian service to take up battle against spiritual evils, and we may be armed. Sorry, that's the wrong prayer. We, I didn't read that last night. I've got the two of them together. Start again. You have given your children a sacred time for renewing and purifying their hearts that freed from disordered affections, we may deal with the things of this passing world to hold rather to the things that eternally endure. So last night I spoke about this sacred time, this entering into a time of testing driven here by the Holy Spirit to encounter temptations in order that we can be proved and renew our baptismal covenant that we'll renew tomorrow. So this talk is aiming at that part of the prayer that's disordered affections or disordered emotions. And by our baptism, this is a theological term, we've been given a new character. We've been adopted as children of God and as children of God, here's the theological thing that we're going to start breaking down, we become priests, prophets, and kings. Has anyone ever heard that you are a priest, prophet, or king? How many? Okay. Okay, good. Maybe a quarter of you. What on earth does that mean? Right? Well, this morning we're going to be talking about this kingly function or this royal function or this, um, how does it put it here? This a campaign or a battle to be in control of our human nature. I as a person have difficulty with my unruly affections, and I need to learn to make decisions 
to bring myself under control of myself. Because sometimes I do things I don't want to do, and sometimes I don't do things that I desire to do. And our kingly function or our queenly function or our royal function or our uh, governing function from our baptism, our baptism helps to bring us as a person back under control of our human nature. And I'm going to look at that specifically. Now I'm going to start getting a little bit more practical. I'm going to look specifically at that area that affects both our body and affects our soul. I'm going to start looking at that very area where we're most disordered because of original sin. And that's called our emotions. Our emotions are part of our human nature, and they are good. Emotions, using a little analogy, are like a motor. It's like a little motor that's within us that turns on and gives us energy when we perceive something. We can perceive something through our body, through our senses, we can see something. Or we can also experience the turning on of that, that motor in our soul, most specifically, our mind. Because sometimes memories can turn on an emotion, or sometimes our imagination can turn on an emotion. Now let me define or tell you what some of the emotions are. There's, some, there's, there's nine main emotions. And there's degrees to all of them. We're complex, if you didn't know this already. The emotions are love, hatred, joy, sorrow, hope, despair, courage, fear, anger, And they're oftentimes in pairs, love and hatred, joy and sorrow, hope and despair, fear and courage. And the one that kind of stands out by itself is anger. Now, is anger good or bad? How many of you think anger is bad? How many of you think anger is good? Okay, so there's a lot of you that don't know if it's good or bad. <laughs> How about despair? Is despair bad? Is despair good? Okay. How about neutral? Our emotions in themselves are good. Anger is good. Hatred is good. Joy is good. Despair is good. Hope is good. But they're also neutral 
because they can, they're good in themselves, but they can be disordered. And it's our person who needs to ask ourselves, I am angry right now. Is my anger ordered well, or is it disordered? Okay, and for that, we have to educate ourselves a little bit. We need to increase our emotional intelligence. What does hatred do? Because I know that hatred is a good thing, but what was it created for? What was fear? Why do I have fear? Is fear a good thing? Is anger a good thing? Is love a good thing? Okay, so they're perceptions. I perceive something. Love perceives a good. I see something as good, and therefore an emotion of love towards something that is good is correctly ordered. I may perceive something that is good, but that is actually evil. So therefore, my emotion of love would be disordered. And therefore, all of our emotions need to be guided by our reason, and we need to make a decision. I act when love is ordered towards good, and I also act when love is ordered towards something that I know is evil. But I have to act differently if it's ordered or disordered. And this is what we call the old-fashioned term virtue and vice. You've all heard of those terms, but this is where we make decisions. I, as a person, through my royal function, by my baptism, am given grace to choose to use my emotions and direct my emotions for good. What about despair? How can despair be good? And how can I choose when I experience despair? Okay, Despair and hope are both emotions. They're a paired emotion, set of emotions that are very similar. Hope sees a good that I presently don't possess, but it's possible for me to possess through some difficulty. Despair is I perceive some good that I do not yet possess. It will be difficult to get but my reason tells me it is impossible for me to achieve. Therefore, I experience despair. Sometimes, I'm sure many of you have heard that despair is a mortal sin. Has anyone ever heard that despairing is a mortal sin? Okay, a few of you. We have to be careful about using the same word generally, when that word may be used particularly. For example, if you grew up and you wanted to be in the Olympics, um, 
I'm just going to make this up, okay? Um, as an as a a figure skater. Okay, I know in Los Angeles you probably don't have ice rinks. Um, you may have, right? Okay, so we're going to use this little example. As an as a little girl, you wanted to be in the Olympics as an ice skater. One of our sisters was in the Olympics as an ice skater, so that's why that one comes to mind. She was a speed skater, though, not a figure skater. You skate, starting from a little girl, you're you're skating, you learn how to skate, and um, you never get on the varsity, I don't know if high schools here have varsity ice skating teams, (laughs) I doubt it, (laughs) okay, but you want to be an Olympic skater, and you practice, and you practice, and you practice, and somehow you go up towards um, Lake Tahoe, okay, close to where I'm from, and that's where you go skating but you never get on the girls' varsity skating team. Well, maybe you don't have the physical ability to achieve the greatness of being able to pass uh, through the, the processes of joining the Olympic team. You're a good ice skater, but you're, you just can't make the cut. Therefore, you need to learn to despair of being on the Olympic team because it is impossible for you. Now, despair does not feel good, but it is a good thing to experience. Do you see the difference there? It does not feel good, but it is good to experience it because it's telling me something. I'm perceiving something, and a little motor has turned on in me that tells my reason this is impossible. Therefore, you need to choose a different good. Despair helps us to recognize that this is impossible for me and I need to change my hope for a different thing. Maybe I'll be on my local neighborhood ice skating team and that's where I will be. So I change my hope, my good, my vision towards something else. In the case of the despair that is a mortal sin, the future good that we hope for is eternal life. On a natural level, we cannot enter into eternal life with just our human nature. It is impossible. But by grace and by the very gift of God, we're given the ability to enter eternal life. If you despair of eternal life, you despair of God's good gift freely given to you, and therefore, can you see why we would call it a mortal sin? If you refuse the gift that's given to you for a hope 
that you hold, you can't achieve that. So despair is a good thing in itself as an emotion, depending on what we're talking about. Hope is patterned or is paired with, with despair. Courage and fear. Fear is a good thing. Fear is a perception that there is something that is dangerous. I do not want this thing to happen. Maybe it's the attack of someone, a stranger, someone who is stronger than I am. Maybe it is a sickness. Maybe it is encountering a wild beast. If you're walking up in the mountains, you come across a mountain lion. Fear is an emotion, and it's a motor, so to speak, that gives me energy to do something. And it gives me the energy, I have a choice, to either fight because I've got this extra adrenaline that comes to my body and I start to feel it when I'm afraid. Sometimes my voice can quiver when I'm afraid. But fear in itself is a good thing if we know what we're perceiving and we can see it. That's what I need to make a choice about. I am afraid of this thing. I can choose to fight it or I can choose to run from it. If you're running from a mountain lion, you better have a lot of adrenaline. But you need to do something. Some people get paralyzed in their fear and as a person, they don't make a choice. And that's where we, we, we need to ask for grace to be able to make decisions. This royal ability that I have that I am in control of my emotions. I am not my emotions. I am a person. And they are under my rule unless I've let my emotions begin to rule me. And there are persons, there are many persons who are ruled by fear. They're governed by fear rather than governing their own emotions. And that's not what it's like. That's not how it's supposed to be. And that's not how it's supposed to be with us who are children of God, given the grace to be free persons to love. Okay? Here's one that I'm going to linger with a bit because a lot of people see anger as sinful. Anger is an emotion. Anger is not sinful. Anger is good, but it can be ordered correctly or it can be disordered. And it's my decision, my reason, that either makes anger work for me for the good or I can choose, or by not choosing to deal with anger, I can be choosing vice. And it's this area of vice, it's not anger in itself that is sinful, 
It's when I make a choice with my emotion of anger, either by not ruling over it, letting it rule me and my behaviors, or I choose to avoid even, I let it control me. I know what's right and I still choose it. So anger, what's anger for? Anger is a perception. All of our emotions are perceptions of something. I perceive something that is unjust or unfair or someone is being hurt. I perceive this. Now, it can be with my senses. I can hear it or I could see it, but it can also be part of coming from our soul specifically from our mind. Maybe something in my past keeps coming to mind because of my memory, and it triggers my anger. It, I perceive something, and it triggers this motor that's going on within me. Or maybe I've got a great imagination, and I'm looking forward into the future, maybe tomorrow, maybe three years from now. And that, whatever I'm imagining, triggers my anger. Okay? All of our emotions are perceptions, and they give us energy to, do, to make a choice. And when I make a choice towards what I'm perceiving the motor will shut off. If I perceive something that's unfair or unjust, I have to make a decision to bring about justice or to bring about fairness or to bring about the stop, stopping of the hurting that I've recognized someone's experiencing. And when I've made that decision, to bring about justice or to bring about fear, uh, faith, fairness or to bring about the stopping of hurt, then my emotion can shut off. Emotions are, are part of our human nature. Whether you're baptized or not, we have emotions. Grace, the grace of our baptism and the graces that are coming from our baptism in our kingly function are what we call the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're gifts for me to be able to rule over or to govern over myself. The gift of understanding, the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, the gift of counsel, the gift of piety, the gift of courage or fortitude, and self-control. Okay? If I am angry, I need to be able to, as a person, begin to use this function of mine, my emotions, to bring about good. Some of you are extremely sensitive and intuitive persons, and you will perceive justice or injustice more keenly than others. You may have a more powerful motor than others. 
You may be driving a Maserati, because you've got such a powerful motor, but maybe you've only driven a Toyota and you don't know what it's like to push down the pedal on a Maserati. And you're driving a Maserati like a Toyota and you're damaging others because you're out of control of the powerful motor that you have, which is given to you for good. It's given to you for justice and to bring about fairness or to bring about the stop of, of people that are getting hurt. But no one's ever taught you how to drive a supercar. So you're getting into trouble and you're causing other people to rightly be angry at you because you're not in control of the very powerful gift that you've been given. Does this kind of make sense? So let me give some... A little example, I'm going to make this example up from New York, just to walk through so we can kind of see how is it that we start processing as a person a decision when we have a perception of something. I live in the South Bronx, not too far from Yankee Stadium, and we're just having our buildings, our buildings are probably about 130 years old, no, 100 years old, the school building where we've got, it was closed down. And recently, we've had to do renovation on the outside. It's an old brick building, and the pointing's um, not good, and there's cr some of the things are crumbling. So there's scaffolding set up in front of the school, and the friary is next to the school building. So there's scaffolding, and our door, our front door, is blocked. Okay? Now, the property that we have that we're using right now, my front door is on 155th. Okay? There's another friary on the other side on 156th because it's a big property. It's kind of like this, this property here. There's a street over here and there's a street over here. Okay? So the entrance for my, my friary is blocked. So I have to go all the way across the block to the, other, to the other street by the church entrance on 156th to get in and out while the scaffolding's there. Okay. I'm up on the second floor of the Friary where our library is, and I'm looking down on 155th Street, and I see across the street, let's say it's a five-year-old little girl, and she's walking there, and I see a teenager, probably in his late teens, my guess, 17, 18, and he, they, they meet, and he's giving her, I, I'm watching this through the, through the library window, he's giving her a little, um, one of those... Um, like a temporary tattoo that you kind of lick and then you put it on because right now, little kids, tattoos are the rage, right? So little kids obviously can't get permanent tattoos, so they love these little tattoos that you used to get in like Cracker Jacks and stuff like that, right? You lick them and you put them on and you get a tattoo. Well, in our neighborhood, this, is, this teenager is a drug dealer and he's beginning to work up his personnel for when they get older and these little tattoos are laced so that when the little girl licks it, she's beginning to develop a drug habit. Okay, so my perception causes within me anger. And I have to ask myself, is this unjust? Of course it is. My anger is correct. Okay, so I've got to make a choice. 
I've got to make a choice of what I do with my anger. I've got to choose to bring about naturally some kind of justice in that situation. So, I'm on the second floor. I can't get out the front door. So what do I do? I try and go, and I have to go all the way to 156th, and I run around the block, and I come, and there's a couple of different things that I can see there. I can see the drug dealer with the little kid, and I see that the drug dealer's got a gun. Okay, and it's just tucked there on the side. So, therefore, my perception, I'm starting to get complex here, my perception of fear also comes in because my life could be threatened here. So I've got two motors going on within me, and I've got to, as a person, make a choice. Now, if I am a person that is not in control of my fear, and fear always is in control of me, then fear is going to be actioning me to go away and to not let this motor of anger or justice come to its close. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to walk away back around the block and pretend that I didn't see what went on. And this anger, this motor that is just and it's good, it has not shut off. So I go back to my friary and at dinner, I'm sitting down at table with the other brothers and this little motor's going on inside of me because I've never brought it to its conclusion. And someone passes the butter to me and it has crumbs on it and I explode. And it has nothing to do with the butter. It's because there's something going on in me that I have not brought to its conclusion and I'm actually damaging other people and I'm actually creating an environment that is unjust myself because I am not in control of my own self in that situation because I'm controlled by fear. Right? Fear is an overwhelming factor in my life that actually encourages me to remain angry. And I'm hurting people. And I don't want to do it, but I'm doing it. And that tells me that I am not in control of my own self. Something else, my own emotions, are in control of me as a person. Has anyone ever heard of the word mortification? Mortification means to kill, right? If fear is in control of my person and in my decisions, I need to mortify my fears because they are in control of me and I'm not in control of them. What does that mean? Well, let's say... I go to the gym, and let's say I always work on this arm. All my exercise is on this arm, and this arm is great, right? Whenever I'm taking selfies, (laughs) 
Whenever I have to lift something, this arm is always because I can rely on this arm. It's strong, and I never show people this arm. Okay? That is unbalanced. So I need to mortify this arm. When I go to the gym, this is how I usually, I'm good at this. Okay? But if I go to the gym, you wouldn't believe how much I'm perceived to be a weakling because of this. To mortify this means I choose today to not exercise this arm and to let the muscles in it begin to decrease and work on my weakness and allow my weakness to be seen and to be working on it. What does that look like in reality? Okay, let's say a choice. I am, I love chocolate chip cookies. Okay, and it's a Friday in Lent. So we're not supposed to be eating chocolate chip cookies in Lent. Okay, but it happens to be the Feast of St. Joseph, which is a great solemnity. <laughs> so one of the brothers bakes chocolate chip cookies, and he's gone from the kitchen, and they're all there on the counter, and they're just at that point where they're not hot, so when you pick it up, it doesn't fall apart but they're still warm and the chocolate's still like smooth, right? So I go and there's the chocolate chip cookie and I'm free to eat the chocolate chip cookie because it's a solemnity even though it's a Friday in Lent. So I go and I'm, I'm just about ready to pick up the chocolate chip cookie when I hear a brother coming in the back door and I am afraid of what this brother will think of me so I pull my hand away, and I don't eat the chocolate chip cookie. That's being governed by fear. So to mortify that fear, what do I do? I wait till the brother comes into the kitchen. <laughs> I take the cookie, and now I hate the cookie because it's causing me internal disturbance like you wouldn't believe and I'm going to put the cookie into my mouth and eat it in front of the brother and go mmm and I hate the taste of this cookie not really but I'm mortifying my fear of how I'm perceived by other people because that is a governing factor in my life that I need to act against. I need to fight against that. I need to... How many of you need courage to eat a chocolate chip cookie in Lent? It's especially good if you're mortifying fear. And we need to be able to mortify things that are in control of us rather than us being in control of them. Okay? I, as a person, need to be able to act freely for good. So, let's go back. That was all to mortify that fear because I went and made that decision by seeing the gun in the, in the drug dealer's, you know, belt or whatever. So, my anger is still going. I'm running around the block. 
And I go there, and um, they're gone. Oh, no. So I've got this motor that's trying to bring about justice to this unfairness that I've seen, and I can't do anything because they're gone. And I don't know who the little girl was. I don't know who the teenage boy was. So therefore, what do I do? Well, this, this anger is still within me that's going on, and it's a powerful one. It was good, like, that was a really unjust thing. I've got some really good anger here, right? What do I do with it? Here's an example. I think I just skipped an example. Let me, let me go back. We'll come back to this one. Pause. Okay, I run around the block. There's a drug dealer. There's a little girl. I go and I, this is naturally, I go and I see them both there and I go up and I confront them. I say, what is this that you gave to this little girl? And he goes, oh, this is my little sister. And it was just a Cracker Jack tattoo, so I'm giving it to her. Who are you? I'm like, oh, I just saw you and I want to make sure that, you know, your sister um, is okay because I was concerned. Therefore, my natural thing by going and clarifying what I saw helped me to shut off my anger. My perception was correct, but I was incorrect because of the details of that situation. But I acted on it, and therefore my motor can shut off and I can start to cool down. Okay, that's naturally we've always got to do what we're supposed to do, make it a decision upon our emotion and bring it to its conclusion. Okay, let's go back now, unpause this. I run around there, and it truly was a drug dealer, and it truly was a little girl that was being um, groomed for drug use, and they're gone. So has anyone ever heard of the little phrase, offer it up? Offer it up. What does that mean? Okay, that is a gift that as children of God, we can begin to integrate not only my royal function of controlling over myself, but also my priestly function. How many of you think of yourselves as priests? Four. My sisters, you don't know who you are. And the world is longing for the children of God to be revealed for who they are for good. Now, you may not know it in that language, but offering it up is a priestly thing. How many of you have ever had to offer something up? Okay, so you may not know what you're doing and how to call it, but you're doing something and you know what you're doing. Okay, offering it up and our priestly function, I'll be talking about that in a one of the other talks, it's different than the, the orders that I have received as a ministerial priest. We have two different types of priesthood, the common priesthood of all of us, of the baptized, and the ministerial priesthood, which is at the service of the baptized. I'll be talking about that in one of the other talks. Anger, when 
in my kingly function that can't come to its natural conclusion because of either an absence of the people that are there, and this can especially happen if my anger is triggered by my memory of the past, because the reality is no longer here, but I'm still reacting to it, or I run out here and the situation's gone and I can't make a decision, this is where we can begin to deal with our emotion of anger by integrating it with our spirit, our priestly function. To offer it up is a different way of, say, of saying making a sacrifice. By our very baptismal character, we're able to make sacrifices. Okay, who do we make sacrifices to? Okay, we can make sacrifices to God. Okay. What are we sacrificing in this case? Okay, a sacrifice is something that you offer to God, but it's something that is somewhat costly. It costs something to make a sacrifice. In this case, my emotion is correct and it's good. I was just not able to bring it to its conclusion. Therefore, I have to accept this suffering, which is good and it's true, and I accept it and I offer it to God for who? I can offer it for that little girl. Because she is below the age of reason and she doesn't know how her life is going to change because of this injustice that's done to her. I can offer it for the teenage boy that's a drug dealer. My guess is that he was in a similar position when he was young and he doesn't know anything else and he is not acting in the freedom of his person. I can offer it for the parents of either one of these two. Imagine the parents of this little girl and the suffering that they're going to be doing. Well, I can accept this sacrifice and I can offer it to God for them. I can take this sacrifice and I can offer it to God for the souls that are in purgatory. Because there may be souls in purgatory that at the last moment cried out for mercy because they were drug dealers or they were addicted to drugs. And now their purgatory, their purgation, they've, they've, been, they've gotten into purgatory, but they can no longer pray for themselves and they need help. I can pray for them and with this sacred exchange... I can pray for them, you pray for me, most especially through the Eucharist. You obtain, I'm going to pray for specifically this drug dealer, I'm going to pray for all the souls that are in purgatory and offer this up, those that were drug dealers, that they obtain grace for this drug dealer that he can change because they know what they needed, and I've never been a drug dealer, so I don't know how to obtain those graces that he would be in need of that could actually change his life. They know now, they see everything in a very different perspective. I'm going to make that exchange. Okay. There's the ritual 
of offering it up or making a sacrifice. I'm making a sacrifice of something, this anger that is correct, and I can't bring it to its natural conclusion, so I'm going to accept the suffering that it causes me because I've got to carry this around. I'm going to offer it to God, and I'm going to offer it for someone. And I'll tell you in that talk on the priestly function how to bring that to its full conclusion. Okay, So you may go back to the dinner table that night, and you're holding this sacrifice, and it's a good one. I mean, it's really good, right? I'm really angry. And here comes the butter with crumbs on it. And I sure do want to yell right now. Well, I get to make another sacrifice. I need to offer that up. Wow, this sacrifice is getting pretty good. Right? And 10 seconds later, I may have to make a decision to offer it up again because, wow, this, this butter is like really on, it's on my nerves. Right? And what happens after the fourth or fifth time I sacrifice it and then all of a sudden I can't hold it anymore and I shout, who left the crumbs on the butter? Okay. There, that was sinful. But do not forget that you were growing in virtue by the sacrifices that you did make even though you may be weak and not able to carry it to its full conclusion, or basically, don't worry that you're not perfect yet. And do not shame your own person, because you're not perfect yet. If you make that mistake, own it and apologize. I ask for your forgiveness for just yelling at, at, at everyone in the family. And it, it's not because of this, although it, look, this is kind of how I'm dealing with, like I saw this whole drug dealer and I'm really angry and I'm trying to work through this and I'm trying to, what are you doing? You're acting as a child of God who's growing in maturity and if those are your children that you yelled at, You're helping them to understand that perfection is not what you're aiming for, but maturity, and you're maturing your children by teaching them that you yourself are not perfect, and you don't have to act like you're perfect, but you as a person are growing in control of yourself, and you're not there yet. And you can also go to confession, right? That's what the sacraments are there for. For when we've made choices in our weakness, in failing, because confession is a grace that's given to us. My last little example here, I'm going to talk about confession. Confession, most of us would go to confession to confess our sins, But in our examination of conscience, we're often also ungrateful for the gifts that we do cooperate with 
And oftentimes our, our examination of conscience is only looking at the things where we've failed rather than also giving thanks for where we have cooperated with God. Confession. I think in the mountains, I'm not sure if it's here in Los Angeles. Do you have rattlesnakes here? Okay. If a rattlesnake bites you, what happens? You pretty much die if you don't take care of it, right? Okay. But there's, there's a remedy to rattlesnake poison, and it's called antivenom. Antivenom is very fascinating. Antivenom is they take, whoever makes it, they take the poison, they milk the poison out of rattlesnakes, and then they inject the poison into rabbits or horses, or cows. Because they have antibodies in their blood system that if a rattlesnake bites them, they don't die. Their antibodies attach to the poison and neutralize it. Well, then the doctors, once they inject the poison, the antibodies are in these animals, and they filter out the antibodies, and they keep it in the hospital in case a person is bitten by a snake, and then they inject the antibodies, and the antibodies go and they target the poison, they attach to the poison, and they neutralize it. Okay? That's a good analogy for confession. Okay? Confession is an act of grace for us when we have chosen to be poisoned. We've chosen sin, okay? I go to confession. I'm not only getting rid of my sin, but I've also been given antibodies. I've been given graces that are specific for what I've confessed so that I can begin to apply them when I go out. Because often enough, you go to confession, if you go on a fairly regular basis, you find yourself confessing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's just like, well, why should I even go to confession? Because the Holy Spirit gives you graces in confession that you bring out of the confessional for the next time you encounter temptation in that very same area. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome our weaknesses with grace. So confession, the confessional, is not only about getting rid of sin, it's also about receiving the antibodies or the grace to help us overcome or to help us to mortify those areas where I am, as a person, am not in control of my very self. So, my sisters, this was a longer talk than, than the others will be, but I hope it, it brings some clarity to you that you are a person who has been given a good and beautiful gift of your free will to be able to choose good and to love, but you may find yourself in a battle against your very self, something within 
that we would call disordered affections. And I've only covered one specific area, but I hope it brings light to the sense that you are a person and you are ordered to good and all of you have some mission and the mission will be more fruitful the more we are in control of those things that we have. I have a body. I have a soul. I have emotions. But I am a person, and I need to live as a person and to do good. And so this retreat, sorry, We're in the wilderness. We're digging down a little bit deeper, going down into the heart. Do not be afraid. Our Father loves us and wants us to be who we are more than we even want to be ourselves. We are good. And he desires us to live in that place. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.